This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode 20, 2021 Pace Odyssey, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creter, Ben Reitzes, Dan Belton, John Hill, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our outlook for U.S. rates, IG spreads, and the U.S. dollar as we focus on the evolving 2021 market narrative, which includes the pace of progress towards a widely available vaccine, a stimulus package, and the election results. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. The market narrative over the coming months will be determined by the evolution of three main factors. The progress toward a safe, effective, and widely available vaccine, the size and timing of a fiscal stimulus package, and not only the election results, but how quickly the results are known. Our base case for a widely available, safe, and effective vaccine is late 2021, which seems to be market consensus, but clearly the market is still tied to pricing progress for an earlier vaccine available to those on the front lines and most at risk, as this presumably would slow virus transmission and allow a greater amount of economic activity to resume earlier than otherwise. On the fiscal stimulus front, while the odds of fiscal stimulus sooner rather than later have declined after President Trump's announcement to delay any stimulus until after the election, we remain in the camp that a deal is still possible. It is an election year after all. The timing matters in that the longer they wait, the greater the potential economic destruction, which drags on the pace of the economic recovery and is quite problematic. In terms of the election, for us, the outcome is binary. Either we know the winner on or soon after election night, or it drags out for some time before there's clarity. Most recently, the market is pricing a greater chance of a blue sweep with fiscal stimulus to follow, including infrastructure programs. The narrative around this for 2021 will likely focus on the dichotomy between the positive impact of these programs versus any discussion on how and when they are ultimately paid for. So let's begin our roundtable discussion with our base case for the vaccine. Is the market pricing in more optimism and a quicker recovery based on that optimism? I wouldn't argue that there's a reasonable amount of optimism priced into the market at this point. Although in the rate space, if we look historically, that period between now and the end of the year has 
typically been associated with pricing in expectations for the year ahead. So operating under the assumption that 2021 couldn't possibly be any worse than 2020, one could say with a straight face that there might be more additional upside in the form of higher rates and loftier equity valuations to be realized before the end of the year. All of that being said, as you point out, Margaret, the path toward a vaccine is key, although there is a point where a vaccine is a nice-to-have but not a necessity for re-engaging the frontline service sector employees and pushing forward to some version of the new normal. I think one other reason this optimism might be a little more resilient, all else equal, is because there are a variety of vaccines under consideration and under study. What this means is that even if one doesn't work, even if two don't pan out, there are still always others in the pipeline that could come through at some point and call it the next 12 months. And it's that optimism or that possibility that will stay. Now, this is a little bit different than some of the discussions around the trade deal two years ago, or even around fiscal stimulus, which was a lot more binary. Because of the variety of options, it makes it a more resilient optimism, if you will. I think if you look at things from a uh, macro perspective and looking at economic projections, looking at the Fed's economic projections, right now, I think what most are looking for is a bigger rebound than what you'll see if we don't get a vaccine early in 2021, or at least come to some kind of consensus that therapeutics are strong enough, are good enough to treat this thing and really make things livable again and, and really enable the service sector to rebound. If we don't get to that point, if you don't get the therapeutics, if we don't get a vaccine, which again, isn't looking likely, as we've mentioned, the macro forecasts are probably on the optimistic side, which then suggests the market is also on the optimistic side. And at this point, I mean, fiscal stimulus is certainly going to help and, and arguably is, is necessary, but we may be too optimistic at present. So, Ben, I think you raise an interesting point with regard to therapeutics. And as mentioned, there are 41 vaccines in clinical trial on humans right now and 91 in preclinical development. So it seems more likely than not that at least one of these will be successful and 2021 should certainly not be as bad as 2020. Well, one of the ongoing issues still remains just because there is a viable vaccine that is accessible to the populace, will people embrace it? Or will the timeline with which it's been pushed through leave lingering concerns about its safety? And as a result, the path toward herd immunity becomes a lot longer than the health experts would like to see. I would argue that that is part of what has been limiting further upside in both equities and treasury rates at this point. You make a great point about people embracing the vaccine, Ian. And if I could just chime in with a short UK perspective, I think there's a lot riding on the efficacy signal from the Oxford vaccine, which is expected later this quarter. If that's positive, then we can move to the government approval phase. And after that, the government plans to roll out the vaccine to elderly and vulnerable people. But from that point forward, it's largely a game of, well, trial and error. In other words, we won't really know if the vaccine is making progress until more and more people use it. And we have more facts about how much or not the vaccine is reducing transmission of the virus through the wider population. 
I think that's a great point. And I think it goes back to the point that the establishment and distribution of this vaccine is going to be a very gradual event. And it's going to be a process that persists over the course of several months or even a year from when the first doses are available to when take-up is enough to ensure some amount of herd immunity. And I think we won't return to something completely normal like pre-2020 until maybe as late as early 2022, but there will be incremental improvements between now and then that allow economic activity to partially resume. Well, and to your point, Dan, one of the key assumptions when we think about what is actually priced into the market at this point isn't that every company is going to return to pre-pandemic levels. The point has been made on several occasions that there are decided winners and losers in the current economy. Commercial real estate, for example, will be under a lot of pressure for the foreseeable future until we have a better sense with the durability of the new work-from-home situation going forward, and of course, what type of office space is actually going to be needed, particularly in the major urban areas. And that then speaks to one of the key dislocations that has been very thematic throughout a lot of the domestic economy, and that's the movement from urban centers into the first and second ring suburbs, and how quickly that has changed the employment dynamic, especially in the frontline service sector. And as we look forward, I think it's important to keep in mind that the mobility of the workers in the urban centers does not imply that people are going to be willing to relocate for 12 to 18 months and then reverse that trade. If some of the transitions become stickier, there will be a longer path to recovery to re-engage the economy as a whole. On the optimistic front, one of the things that is clear over the last several months As we continue to set new highs of cases of COVID-19 on a global basis almost every day, the deaths are not climbing alongside the case count. In other words, the infection fatality rate of the disease has dropped fairly dramatically from what it was back in March and April. This probably, with time, as the population becomes comfortable with this fact, allows people to... uh, resume somewhat normal economic activity, even in the absence of a widely available vaccine. And another aspect of this that is worth mentioning is something, Dan, that you touched on earlier, and that's there could be subsets of the population that are those first to receive a vaccine or activities that require a vaccine to participate in. Now, the exact logistics of this obviously remain to be seen, But in the event, say, airlines or schools mandate a vaccine to either return to flying or return to attending school, that could allow certain pockets of economic activity to pick up more meaningfully. And on the school front, in the event that education can resume in a more traditional manner, that also helps mitigate the drag on the labor force that we all have talked about in that with kids still at home and not attending school, that operates as a headwind to many people returning to work as they did before the pandemic hit. I think, Ben, you raise a great point about the different subsets to first receive a vaccine, those most at risk and on the front lines. And if we were to take a step back and frame up what we think 2021 will look like in terms of the narrative from quarter to quarter, our base case is likely that we do return to an increase in economic activity 
relative to where we are now. Of course, that is also based on the assumption that many of the states that are currently still in different modes of lockdown begin to lift those and maybe become more targeted depending on where the cases are surging. But also those who are most at risk might continue to protect themselves while those who are least at risk, especially in light of the increase in therapeutics and, as Greg highlighted, the decrease in fatality rates as we've learned more about the pandemic over time, might make people more comfortable returning to an increased level of economic activity. So if we were to frame up 2021 and this narrative and the evolution of this narrative, how do we see the rates, spreads, and FX markets evolving under that narrative? So given that backdrop, and as we consider how the economy is eventually going to work its way out of this and back to, again, some semblance of normality, one thing that has been made abundantly clear on the part of monetary policymakers is that policy rates are going to be at zero for a very, very long time. This will peg front-end rates, call it two-year yields, in a range between 10 and 20 basis points for the foreseeable future. And of course, further out the curve, while we have seen some of that bear steepening that we had been anticipating, the degree to which that can extend will be a function of how vulnerable risk assets ultimately prove to be. I think we can all say with a straight face, there's enough stimulus in the system to worry about inflation in one way, shape, or form in the next several years. But if we were to price that in in the traditional way, that would imply 10-year yields above, call it, 1.5%. There's very little chance that domestic equity valuations would be able to sustain a backup in rates that substantial. And subsequently, we would expect a sell-off in stocks to increase equity vol, and that's the circle that brings us back to tighter financial conditions. And implicitly, the Fed is waiting in the wings in such a situation that they would roll out a program such as an extension of the weighted average maturity of QE purchases. And so that risk has capped how far we would expect to see the curve re-steepen and rates back up. That is the very long way of saying that we're going to be in a range for twos, tens, and thirties. However, the range widens the further you get out the curve. Could easily see a test of 1% in 10-year rates, but that will be quickly bought and rates will return to a familiar range of, call it, 50 to 85 basis points in the first part of 2021. Ian, that range you're talking about for rates is pretty unexciting for FX. An awful lot of the time, exchange rates tend to follow short-term interest rates. But when short-term interest rates don't move, then FX has to find something else to pay attention to. We've seen already over the last several months of, I'll call it, partial normalization from COVID-19 that... The foreign exchange market has chosen to attach itself to the equity market. And so rallies in equities have been accompanied by a decline in the U.S. dollar. For the first part of that decline, the market was long and wrong dollars and needed to get out of the trade. Now the market's short dollars. And so if we have this continuation, there's less ability for the dollar to decline. But I think that that's likely to be the case for at least the majority of 2000. 
21, that you have a downdraft in the U.S. dollar, not at the pace of the uh, June, July, August period, but maybe at a third or a fourth of that pace. Regarding credit spreads, Margaret, I think the scenario that you lay out supports a view for a slow grind narrower in credit spreads as long as vaccine headlines remain on track as we expect. And I think the experience of the past few weeks in credit spreads really goes to reinforce that thought where we had a bit of a risk off resulting in about a 15 basis point backup in credit spreads. But over the course of just the past week, we've seen the majority of that credit spread widening retrace, and we're now sitting just about five or six basis points above post-pandemic lows. The past few weeks just goes to show how investors are increasingly refocusing their sights on the long-term horizon where we expect to see a return to a low vol, very low credit spread environment. So any backup we get is being bought pretty quickly. So I think we should see this continuing grind narrower to new lows as we approach the end of the year and into 2021 in credit spreads. But The one question that remains sort of unanswered for me is whether or not we're going to have more fiscal stimulus. From a credit spread standpoint, we've been monitoring the path of bankruptcies over the course of the pandemic. And after hitting highs in April, May, June, and July, we saw a tick lower in August, leading to some optimism that maybe bankruptcies were starting to turn the tide. But again, in September, bankruptcies ticked higher once again, near 2020 highs led by the small business sector. And it leads me to believe that without more fiscal stimulus, we could see bankruptcies continue to remain higher, potentially even accelerate. And then we could get a risk off move. So we've heard a lot of chatter about this in Washington that hasn't yet resulted in anything. But for me, whether or not there's fiscal stimulus will go a long way to determine the near term path of risk assets. So Dan, you make a really good point that so much of our outlook is based on the probability of a fiscal stimulus package, whether it be this year or next year. The problem with delaying it until next year is that it increases the economic damage that's done, and that also increases the time it takes to recover from this pandemic period. In terms of our base case consensus for fiscal stimulus, we remain in the camp that it is more likely than not It is an election year after all. Despite that, the Senate is still trying to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They've also had several members come down with COVID-19 over the past week. In addition, over a third of them are on the campaign trail themselves. Time is running out. We've got four weeks until the election, which brings us to the election risk. We haven't really spoken about that. It's binary. It will be over sooner rather than later. We will know the results, whether it be on election night or several days after. With the odds increasing in favor of Biden, the market seems to be pricing in a blue wave win, reducing uncertainty that we have a contested election. Not sure if that's completely off the table and what the implications are. What I would say, Margaret, from an international perspective, if we look at two of the most important components of the dollar basket, let's take Asian currencies on the one hand and just call it the ADXY, and we'll take the euro on the other hand. I think what the FX market has done over the course of the last few months is priced in the combination of the Fed and a bit of election uncertainty, but it hasn't gone all the way yet in pricing in a relaxation in geopolitical and trade risk, which we assume will be the case if we get a Biden win and or a democratic sweep. So in that instance, despite the fact that the global economic backdrop is still – 
I would say, inherently deflationary. There are still lingering political risks. There are still risks from more central bank easing, debt risks, and so on. Despite that, we still haven't gotten to the stage yet where I think euro dollar reflects a relaxation of transatlantic trade and geopolitical tension. And there's probably a little bit of upside in some of the more beaten down aspects of the ADXY. So for example, as long as we don't get another downdraft in oil prices, Indonesia maybe can rally a little bit. Thailand, South Korea probably can catch up a little bit with the RMB, that type of thing. I don't think we've seen a completion of that trade yet in FX. So Stephen, I think what I'm hearing you say is that outside of the U.S., many investors might not be trusting the polls and there still remains quite a bit of uncertainty, whereas in the U.S., a greater probability of a blue wave is being priced currently. I would say that is a fair assumption. I would also say that from an international perspective outside of the United States, we don't actually know what the international and or trade policies, if you like, of a Biden administration are going to look like. Is the U.S. going to maintain a more inward-looking protectionist bias with a Biden administration in the White House and a Democratic sweep? Or is it going to be more pro-globalization? Our assumption is that there will be elements of pro-globalization in a Biden administration or with a Democrat-controlled Congress. And so therefore, that counts for a little bit of upside appreciation of the euro and Asian currencies. But beyond that point, it's still too uncertain at this stage. I think part of the pricing of a blue wave in the U.S. is the increased chance of a massive fiscal stimulus program that includes some sort of an infrastructure program as well. And one of the trade-offs with that will be the discussion of stimulus versus how we pay for it in terms of increasing corporate tax rates and individual tax rates. And that's going to be one of the key factors to watch as 2021 unfolds. How exactly does that play out with regard to the added impact on the economy of fiscal stimulus versus the discussion of fiscal taxes and sort of the push-pull between the two. Wait, Margaret, if, if we have stimulus, we have to pay for it? Don't worry, not this generation. There are three essential ways to reduce the deficit. The first is to grow your way out of it over time. The second is to inflate your way out of it. And the third is to increase taxes to pay your way out of it. The optimal way would be to grow your way out of it, but with an aging population and the demographics and technological advances, that seems like it may be a challenge. But I digress. That's more of a long-term issue, and we're talking about 2021 and the risks to the market in terms of the narrative on vaccine, fiscal stimulus, and election. So just personal view of methods for paying for it that have been discussed by the Biden campaign, which include raising corporate taxes and perhaps rewriting the code again, as well as addressing it through personal taxes, through measures such as recategorizing capital gains as ordinary income. The personal tax stuff is easier to tackle in year one of the blue wave than the corporate tax stuff is. That's where I think we'd be more likely to see almost immediate action is get rid of the salt deduction changes that the Trump administration brought in that Democrats all hate and combine that with higher capital gains taxes for wealthy individuals. That can happen in 2021. Corporate taxes being raised, I don't think so. So in summary, 
based on our discussion, we expect the front end of the U.S. rates market to remain anchored by the Fed for several years while the curve bear steepens slightly before returning to the familiar range of 50 to 85 basis points. We expect credit spreads to slowly grind tighter and the U.S. dollar to drift downward, but at a much slower pace than in 2021. Thank you to all of our BMO experts, and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons monthly episode 20, Pace Odyssey. Please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics you'd like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.karens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.